0: Everybody is I. You all know you are you. And wheresoever beings exist throughout all galaxies, it doesn't make any difference. You are all of them. And when they come into being, that's you coming into being.
2: Hey, what is up everyone? Hope you're all doing well wherever you are in the world. In this podcast, this week is with a guy called Andrew Collins. He's a science and history writer and he's the author of many different books that challenge the way we perceive the past. They include books called From the Ashes of Angels, Gods of Eden, The Gateway to Atlantis, The Cygnus Mystery, Gobekli Tepe, The Genesis of the Gods. And he is one of the leading researchers that has been researching Gobekli Tepe. And if you're not sure what that is, Gobekli Tepe is basically the oldest intelligent megalithic structure that has been found on the planet. And also in the book I mentioned before called The Cygnus Key, I would highly recommend checking this out. We talk about a lot of this book in this podcast and I've read it myself. And basically this book by Andrew examines the newly discovered species called the Denisophans and their links to found in civilization. And we dive deep into that in the in the podcast. We also talk about Gobekli Tepe and all the research that Andrew has done on that as he's really at the cutting edge of that research and has been leading leading teams of researchers into that area. We ask the question who were the Denisovans and are they actually the founders of human civilization and are they the giants of legend that everyone spoke about and the evidence that has been found as well of giants around the world. We talk about the new evidence of the emergence in regards to the Denisovans and of how they're high culture, how they had high culture sorry, in the form of musical instruments, advanced stone technologies, bone needles, precision finished jewelry, which is really interesting I would recommend checking that out. We talked about shamanism and even horse domestication and there is every indication that 60 to 70,000 years ago, yes that's right 60 to 70,000 years ago they were the most advanced human species on the planet and Andrew really comes with a lot of research and packs a punch on this one we recorded this one at andrew's house in essex in london and we met up met up with him for the day and this podcast in my opinion is one of the most impactful podcasts that we've ever done i've been a huge fan of his work for many years in the knowledge and research that he brings to the table in my opinion is such a strong body of evidence evidence and the findings completely shatters the current paradigm in terms of what we think we know about our human origins so anyway this podcast is an absolute beast i'm not going to say any more about this as this conversation completely speaks for itself and in the youtube version as well i've spent a few extra hours just for you all and I've added a few pictures to the video form of this podcast. So if you want to see some of the pictures that match up to some of the things that Andrew says in this podcast, I would recommend heading over to our Send Podcast YouTube page. And if you also want to help us sustain this mission that we're on and trying to create the best podcasts on the planet for you, please consider supporting us via our Patreon page or our one-off donation option. I've emailed all the people personally that I've that that have had have so had, that have so far supported us, and I've had some great back and forth between all the amazing people who have supported us so far. So no more need to be said there. But if you are out there and you are maybe in a position where you can help us out and support us, please consider doing it. Any amount will be a huge help, and will add to what we're doing here and give us basically a base to keep doing what we're doing and have all these amazing conversations and you can have them in your life too. So anyway, enjoy this conversation. Thank you so much for joining us and doing this as well and then coming on the podcast. And um, like I said to you earlier before we started this, I've been a big fan of your research and work and I've read your book, The Cygnus Key, and I've also read your book, Go Becky Teppy, there, uh, Go Beckley Teppy, as well. Um, but maybe just a good place to start this, I mean, and just to paint up a bit picture as well is, I mean, I'm quite knowledgeable in your work as well. But I think in this podcast, I just want to sort of get out your way, maybe guide you into a couple of things and allow you to really get across your. Research and the knowledge that you do have about this, because it really is fascinating. Um, but maybe just a good place to start this would be to describe what Göbekli Tepe actually is and how was it
0: discovered. Okay, well, Göbekli Tepe was originally discovered um, back in the 1960s, actually, by a team from Chicago. Um, but all they did was went out to the top of this mountain in southeast Turkey. Um, and saw this so-called occupational mound um, which is just a huge mound of earth and rubble and uh, refuge um, and saw that there were literally tens of thousands of of stone tools just laying around Um, they were neolithic they recognized that but they also saw pieces of carved stone and so advanced were they that they dismissed the whole area everything as belonging merely to a Byzantine um cemetery dating back no more than a thousand years so they went away that's what they recorded down um the actual catalog of sites that they visited didn't appear until 1980 I believe uh, so nobody took any notice of the place but um but a guy called Professor Klaus Schmidt um of the German Archaeological Institute um He'd been working at another really early Neolithic site um, to the north of Gabetli Tape called uh, Novali Chori, Um, and they discovered these incredible um, cult structures there, including these T-shaped pillars that were anthropomorphic in the fact that they had these strange um, reliefs of arms along the side of them, and uh, these T-shaped heads, and there were 12 of them in one particular cult structure, uh, facing towards two other larger ones in the centre. And, uh, I mean, I saw this for the first time, I think it was in about 1998, and I just it just blew my mind. It was like something out of 2001, yeah. The Space Odyssey. Yeah. I mean, you know, it was like yeah, the monolith, basically. I mean, the remaining one within Nivali Chori, the way that it appeared, just looked extraordinary. And I just thought... This is it. This this is the key to our understanding of a lost civilization. Um, and prior to that time, just out of interest as a background, um, when Professor Klaus Schmidt went to this site, which was um, for the first time, I think it was in October 1994, um, it was the same time that I was putting pen to paper and creating a book called From the Ashes of Angels. Um, what this essentially said was that in the area of Southeast Turkey and across the Near East in general, were lots of accounts of these mythical beings that had provided humanity with inventions that allowed them to create civilization. Everything from the Watchers and the Nephilim of the Book of Enoch and the Bible to the Anunnaki of um, Sumerian and Babylonian tradition. Um, they're all said to have, you know, been flesh and blood, uh, you know, human beings um, that somehow gave rise to, you know, human civilization. And I suggested that this related to some kind of um, elite group that came into the area at the end of the last ice age and triggered something. Um, you know, in an area which, in the Bible, is the, the Garden of Eden. Uh, It's the cradle of civilization, And that essentially, you know, the the Watchers and the the Nephilim, who are considered to be fallen angels, were flesh and blood. And that this was the origins of angels, That that, you know, hence the the, the title of the the book. Um, And as I said, at the very same time that I was writing this, Klaus Schmidt was putting uh, the first spade in the ground at Gobekli Tepe and... After he'd recognised that this place was very similar mm. to Navali Chori, uh, and of course he starts uncovering immediately evidence of the same what they call pre-pottery Neolithic culture mm. as Navali Chori, but this time it's massive. I mean, you know, instead of there just being one main cult structure, now they're they're uncovering, you know, literally dozens of them. Most of them are very small. But some of them are massive, sophisticated, extremely old. In fact, they go back to about 9,500 BC, even about a 1,000 years earlier than Nivali Chori. And, I mean, to, to describe these places, it's almost like saying, if you look at Stonehenge, if you were to transpose that, Onto a mountaintop in in Southeast Turkey, multiply it by twenty times. Cover the stones with beautiful images of, of birds and animals and other creatures of the natural world, um, and you know carve them into these T-shaped, um, you know sort of appearances, um, and then put two huge monoliths, monoliths at the center of these structures that's what we're talking about in Göbekli Tepe and of course the question comes is well, who who built these and you know why are they there yeah
2: that's that's the question I definitely want to try and I want to dig into as well but just before we go there something that interested me in your book was um when you wrote about how Göbekli Tepe was actually deliberately ber- uh, buried could you actually go in a bit into that
0: well i i mean to be honest it's not deliberately buried right. um Well, when I say that, not the whole thing at least, um, because it's like a layer cake of activity. The earliest structures date back to 9,500 BC, and they're built on the bedrock. And it would seem that at some point it was decided that they would decommission those particular enclosures and build new ones. Now, whether this was to the side of them or they would cover them over and build them on top, you know this we're not sure the exact sequence, but very gradually over a period of of about fifteen hundred years uh, this layer cake of activity built up so that the youngest of the enclosures, which by the way are the smallest and less sophisticated, are near the top, and those were the ones that Klaus Schmidt found first because he could see that the very tops of the stones you know poking out of of the soil of of these. Um, agricultural fields and in fact the, the farmer who owned the land had um, you know, found some bits and pieces and taken them to the local museum at Schoenlofer and said look th- there's obviously something here why don't you come and have a look they never bothered to, to go up there so you know but Klaus Schmidt obviously knew what he was looking at and within just a matter of, of a few years they'd uncovered these incredible structures
1: yeah. so just put on a scale of things how how old is Gobekli Tepe compared to something such as like the Great Pyramid?
0: Yeah. Um, well, the Great Pyramid in Egypt is conventionally around 2,500 BC. Uh, Stonehenge in England is around a similar age. Uh, and this would make them at least 7,000 years later or younger than Gobekli Tepe. Mm. And when we think in terms of the evolution of civilization that, you know, you start from nothing and gradually gain technology and understand and experience. Something was obviously wrong, because quite clearly, Gebekli Tepe was out of place. And not only was it out of place in age, but also in appearance. It didn't look like any of the, the, the proto-early structures of uh, civilizations like Egypt um Samaria uh, or the Indus Valley or anything found in, in elsewhere in the ancient world I mean when I first got there which was in 2004 um I mean and they were still what well, they were half excavating when I got there, there was actually nobody there not not one person nobody even guarding the site wow. um and when I looked at the carvings and, and the stones and everything for the first time you know in complete silence basically you know i i thought to myself this is this is just not like anything in the ancient world in fact the closest comparison that i would give it was mesoamerican or south american cultures like those found in peru or colombia uh, or possibly even in mexico i mean it was that style and there was a, there was a sort of edginess about it which you know was slightly unnerving because you know that these, these cultures in South America or Central America are involved with some quite heavy stuff, you know, blood sacrifices and whatever. And here you had similar style of art, but now so close. This was in Turkey, you know, obviously on the very edge of, of Europe itself. But having said that, I mean, to date, there's been no evidence that, um, you know, that sacrifices or anything like that took place at Gobekli Tepe, and it would seem as if its function was was entirely different, nothing to do with that. Yeah, just
2: just a sort of reiterate as well. Is Gobekli Tepe now actually sort of understood to be the the oldest megalithic structure now in the world as well?
0: Yeah. yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, if you just want a straight timeline, I mean, the the oldest stone circles are those at Gobekli Tepe, and I don't think that anybody could deny that. I mean, some might say, oh, well, they're in a different style to, let's say, Stonehenge or Avebury. Uh, in southwest England but yeah I mean we're talking about huge megalithic structures and what's so interesting is that the earliest ones are all carved but the culture that emerged from that at Gobekli Tepe they still use standing stones but they started not putting any carvings on them so this was the beginning of, of the megalithic culture that we see. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, they started off looking beautiful with these T shaped uh, capitals uh, with these carvings of animals and birds and whatever. Mm-hmm. And eventually, somebody decided, "No, we won't bother to do that anymore. We'll <coughs> just just have the, the you know the, 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 the rocks themselves, and we'll yeah. just put them up in circles." <laughs> it,
1: it, oh, sorry, I was just going to say it's interesting when you like um talk about why they put like um animals on them. Um, it's kind of like a symbolizing to, like to prolong like their culture forever by writing them on stone that's kind of a very good symbol um it makes me actually think like what motivated them to like, to build such a structure like was
0: it like to prolong their culture um no i don't think it was to prolong their culture i mean i don't think they they saw things in in that term but i, I think that we have to go back to when all this was taking place Um, Around 9500 9600 BC. This was just after, I mean, you know, within a generation or so of the end of an extremely traumatic period in human history, uh, which was um, which included this 1200 year ice age, mini ice age known as the Younger Dryas, which itself had almost certainly been triggered by a cataclysm. Um, which which seems to have been caused by a fragmenting comet, that's what all the latest scientific uh, and geological information tends to suggest, that occurred around 10,800 BC and completely messed up the world, particularly the Northern Hemisphere, and probably killed as much as 75% of the human population. Um, it's something which uh, the scientific world has been trying to ignore uh, because it, the implications are obviously enormous in, in every different discipline and also it's not taught in universities, therefore it doesn't exist. You know yeah. what I mean? <laughs> um, but but now there's overwhelming evidence that, that that this took place. But this didn't all just happen in one day. I mean, it would seem as if there were wildfires, reverberations, possibly other cosmic events going on. For hundreds of years afterwards, um, clearly it would have caused uh, the human populations that existed at the time probably to clear off into you know new territories where they would have encountered other human populations. So there would probably have been fighting and wars and stuff like this, you know, as they were desperately trying to uh, continue their own culture and their own existence. Um, and as I said, this went on for 1,200 years. I mean, the Ice Age itself would have pushed south, obviously away from, you know, the the more northerly climes in the Arctic region of uh, different human groups. And, of course, they would have gone further and further south, and some of them would have ended up in Anatolia, uh, you know, modern-day Turkey, having come between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea and crossing the, 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 the Caucasus region. And I think that this is what was going on um, when Göbekli Tepe was constructed. That you had indigenous peoples in in, in the area, uh, the remnants of um, existing, uh, you know, very late Paleolithic cultures, like the Natufian peoples of um, of the Levant, um, the, um, the the peoples of the Zagros regions. I can't remember the name uh, at the moment, and other, you know, peoples that, that just existed in the area and that new people started to arrive. And they had a lot more sophistication because they were part of uh, a much earlier advanced culture coming in from the north that had existed in places like Russia, the Ukraine, and even as far west as, um, as, as the Carpathian Mountains. Uh, and they were known as the Swiderians or the Swiderian tradition. And they were incredibly advanced. I mean, you know, their stone tool technology was far more advanced than what had existed in the Levant and the nearest up to that point. Um, And also, they would have experienced close hand these cataclysms and got away with it. I mean, they would have been much more in the firing line because the cataclysm would seem to have, have... uh, affected most of North America and killed off at least 75% of the Clovis culture that existed there. But some of the fragments unquestionably reached Europe um, and even the, the Near East it's well nearest itself, possibly within 150 miles or so of Gobekli Tepe. And so these people would have been seen to have survived this. They were very advanced. They now came into a community of a, a different type of population population a population which i think would have been in fear of these type of cataclysms occurring again Um, and they would have been suffering from what um, the visionary writer barbara hanklow referred to as catastrophobia you know the fear the further cataclysm or catastrophe And i think this is real and i mean back in those days there were no psychoanalysts that you could go to and say look i've got a bit of a problem you know every time a comet comes in the sky i fear that the world's going to be destroyed but what you did have is shamans or shamans who were the go-to people if you had a problem you know whether it was whether it was you know dispute in the community or somebody needed healing you know something going on or success in the hunt whatever you'd go to the shaman and these people were clever um they may have even formed part of a different you know human group in their own right and what i suspect is that people were going to these these shamans possibly this this incoming group and saying look you know we've got a problem here can you sort it out And they said look no problem you know, just do what we say and, you know, we'll make sure that when the comets do come into the sky, you know, they won't cause any further harm. So as part of this agreement, they construct, the local people construct these huge monuments, unlike anything created prior to this time in, in any other part of the world. Now, I don't think it, this was only going on at Gobekli Tepe. I think that... Probably in various parts of the world, um, similar sort of monuments were now starting to be dis- uh, constructed uh, with their sole purpose to either appease the supernatural forces or creatures that were seen to be responsible for cataclysms, um, you know, or as points of access between this world and the next. In other words, if you're going to deal with supernatural creatures. Which were often, by the way, seen in terms of of, um, of canines, you know, dogs, most obviously, but also wolves, uh, foxes, stuff like that. Of which there's a lot of imagery to do with that at Gobekli Tepe, yeah. um, and that the idea would be that when there was such a threat, the shaman, you know, or groups of shamans would go into altered states of consciousness. They would project themselves, their minds. Into this otherworldly environment, which would either be seen, you know, below the ground or most likely in the sky, and they would then deal, in some capacity, with the supernatural creatures, where they would appease them, beguile them, convince them do something that would stop them, and then they'd come back to the community and said, "Look, all sorted, no problems," and and everybody would be happy until the next comment appeared. And I think this is exactly what was going on at Gobekli Tepe for, well, probably throughout the entire period of its existence, which was about 1,500 years, as I said, from 9,500 to 8,000 BC. A long time. It is a long time. But at the end of it, the monuments were getting simpler um, and smaller. They also were not orientated in the same way as the early ones, which seem to have been connected with the stars they were now pointed towards the sun the sun when it rises at certain times like the equinoxes or solstices um, they were tiny in fact I mean that they, they, they have these strange little benches around them these tiny little T-shaped stones in them I mean to be honest when I first saw them I thought they looked like you know sort of you know stone age jacuzzis basically yeah. I mean it was <laughs> oh, it was just a little weird so what was going on? Well, I think the idea was that by this time that the communities had started having other priorities of life. The, the Neolithic revolution in agriculture and animal husbandry had now started. They were relying on the idea of people coming together and working together in farming communities and a sedentary lifestyle. Um, so they were more interested now in the sun rising than they were the appearance of, wow. of comets in the sky. And I think that this transition caused them eventually to shut up shop at Quebec Tepe and just say, look, let's go out and, you know, uh, find some new territories and do the same thing there. And that's exactly mm. the beginning of the Neolithic Revolution, which began approximately between 9,000 and 8,000 B.C., uh, and coincides really with the end of Gebekli Tepe and, and that culture. Uh and of course what happens then? This culture spreads westwards into Europe, um, eastwards into um, you know, Central Asia and eventually into Southern Asia. Um and that's it. That's that's you know, the, the Neolithic Revolution.
2: Yeah, really well explained there, by the way. Mm. Um, something in your book as well I want to touch on is when you talk about in your book Gobekli Tepe, when you talk about the portal stones. I want. Could you actually just dive a bit in what? What was the purpose behind them? Your understanding.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you go into a church or a temple, the main focus is, quite clearly, the altar. You know, and that's usually a box made of of either wood or stone. In a church, for instance, you'll have a cross on it. You know, and as you walk towards it, all of the different statues. Um, or murals will, will face towards you, you know, to give you a certain sense of, of reverence and respect. And the closer you get towards the altar, you feel the closer towards God. And of course, in a church, they're all orientated towards the east. Um, the east is considered to be the direction of heaven um, in Christian tradition. Yeah, you know, obviously, the rising sun, uh, uh, an obvious direction of life. Uh, Obviously other religions have similar themes and similar directions to do with their particular deities and the altars are in a similar manner orientated uh, in in that particular direction. Well, coming back to Gabelli Tepe, what we find is that the entrance into them is almost unanimously from the south and you then walk towards these two huge great central monoliths which remember are anthropomorphic they've got these strange arms the heads uh, are these t-shaped terminations which haven't got any uh, kind of faces or anything like that on them and remember they could have done it because um you know three-dimensional Um, art has been found at Quebecli Tepe and other similar sites of the region, so they they could have chipped them and chiseled them away to create a face if they wanted, but they left it, they left it bare now this probably inferred that these were the first gods or celestial beings or ancestral spirits, something like that but then you then walk between these, these twin central monoliths and you're facing essentially towards the north northwest, and in three of the main enclosures uh, and the oldest ones, you have instead of an altar this monolith this this um this this hewn monolith that has a hole pierced through it now it's not large enough to get anybody through um, and in the past there's a very good likelihood that you'd have been able to see through that hole from the center of the twin monoliths to the actual horizon itself. So not only do these porthole stones replace the early altars, and when I say replace, what we know is that in the later structures, this same position, you have box-like, you know, stones, similar to altars in other words the first altars come from this this tradition the direction of heaven so is it possible therefore that the builders of Gobekli Tepe saw through this hole towards the horizon and there was something important going on in that direction well the most obvious answer becomes that they were looking in some manner towards the stars. So if we use the mean azimuths of these twin monoliths, which by the way, are, are almost like stargates in a way. I mean, they, are, they allow the connection between this world um, and this liminal realm that exists beyond them, You know, which you would reach in an altered state of consciousness. And so we started Looking myself and my engineer friend uh, Rodney Hale at what these, star, uh, these uh, monoliths and these enclosures were actually orientated facing towards and again and again just one particular star seemed to be exactly in focus and this was Deneb which is the brightest star in the constellation of Cygnus the celestial bird which in most of Europe um, is identified as a swan. Um, But in other parts of the world Cygnus is um, identified as an eagle or a hulk um, or in the Near East and Armenia which used to be a part of of Southeast Turkey where Gobekli Tepe is a vulture. And indeed vultures not only feature in the carved imagery at Gobekli Tepe very prominently but also at virtually every other early Neolithic site in the region. They're very prominently placed. And, and, you know, papers have already been done to say that clearly the vulture was very, very important and it symbolized to them something to do with the transition of the soul from this world to the next. Now, we're not talking about the souls necessarily of the dead. Yes, to a degree, but we're talking about the souls of those who become dead, oh. and when I say dead, I mean dead as in not moving around and could die. Yeah. And we're talking here about shamans, because you know we we have this I, this modern idea that you can join a shamanic group and sit around in circles, go into meditation, share what you pick up and do ayahuasca occasionally. That's modern ideas of what shamanism is all about. But if you were to go back 10,000, 15,000 years ago, you would find that shamans believed that they could die every time that they went into an altered state of consciousness. The type of hallucinogens that they would have used would have been extremely heavy. Um, And they would have believed, rightly or wrongly, that their journey into the other world was exactly the same as somebody when they they die at the point of death. But obviously their difference was that they would go into this other world and hopefully return, and return with the necessary information or having achieved what they needed to achieve once they entered into this world. So birds are very obvious symbols of the soul and its transition from this world to the next and from that world back to here. Now, whether that be uh, the shaman him, him, himself or herself, um, or, of course, incarnation. You know, In many countries of the world, uh, even in w- Europe, we have this idea that birds carry souls into incarnation. Well, that's a later model of the idea that the soul would enter into incarnation as a bird. But obviously, once it took up its role within the body of a, a you know of a newborn child, you know the the, the avian feature would, would, would leave. But it would be picked up again at the point of death. We have this, for instance, in ancient Egypt. You know, we know that the different forms of the soul and spirit uh, took um, you know the guise of of a bird. You know, whether it be a, a hawk. Uh, in some cases it was a goose, um, in some cases a swallow, according to the pyramid texts. But this obviously just sets down in writing. This is a very real idea and certainly goes back several thousand years at least. But I'm sure uh, that this goes back a lot further. In fact, even beyond Gebekli Tepe, the earliest um, uh, suggestion that the bird was used as a symbol of the soul goes back 24,000 years to... Uh, Siberia, where a whole number of swan pendants were uncovered at a site called Malta, uh, near Lake Baikal, huge inland sea, which the archaeologists that, that have done all the work have said clearly, these bird pendants didn't just—they weren't just wearing them for the sake of it. They had great importance. When found in situ, they were orientated northwest, the same direction that birds migrate north to south you know each summer and winter um and that it's very and at least one was found with um um with a, with a, a child burial so you know th- this it became clear and it's strongly mm. believed that that this connection between the the bird and the soul is real well here it is at Gobekli tepe yeah. uh, i mean there is a um a very prominent the most uh, obvious important Pillar, actually, at uh, Gobekli Tepe is the so-called Vulture Stone, Pillar 43. Um, And the central feature on that is a vulture. And the way that its wings are positioned um, resembles exactly how the constellation of Cygnus was around 9600 BC. Um, And, you know, a number of people have noted this, including, obviously, myself, uh, and I think that what you have on that particular stone is essentially a, a, a you know a sky map, a, a map for the soul's transition from this world to the next. Um, but as I said, so going back to the shamans using Gebekli Tepe, I think that they had a route to the stars that they would take. They had a method of getting there, which was to get into altered states of consciousness. It may have involved hallucinogens, um, although none specifically have been found at the site, although a number of the carved in- imagery is very suggestive of mushrooms, um, serpents that have mushroom-shaped heads that could easily suggest that, that, you know, visionary experiences induced by the use of hallucinogens. Um, and they were going into the sky to address the matters of the community and their most pressing matter was that the world didn't end quite literally. Yeah. Um, and this isn't something that's period set around 9,500 BC. There are cultures all over the world that certainly did similar rituals every time comets appeared in the sky from North America to Central America to the Sami people of Finland uh, and I'm sure in many other parts as well,
2: yeah. of the world as well. So. <laughs> By the way, very good explained again. And um, mm-hmm. when you were saying before about the use of shamanism, I think as well, yeah, I would like you to go a bit further into this, but I think you describe um, the use of shamanism. You said that there was also, um, which was prevalent, it could go and it's prevalent around in many other structures around the world is the snakes on the rocks. And I think as well, you mentioned in your book as well about how there was, was the pottery found as well. Or is, am I mis- um, mistaken? I mean, to? not,
0: yes, yeah. I mean, mostly at some of the other similar age sites in the region, yeah. pottery has been found, stone pottery, uh, with snakes on them in, that yeah. are very yeah. similar to those at Gabeti Tepe. But, I mean, when people have ayahuasca experiences, um, apparently, I've not done it myself, but uh, they see quite a lot of uh, snakes, yeah. basically. It's in um,
2: also Jeremiah Aubrey's book as well, the Cosmic Serpent. Yeah, but he exactly. Yeah, and I mean, that.
0: you know, in my books, I talk about this and I reference these these accounts, um, and they they will crawl up, you know, sort of door frames. They will crawl around people. They'll go across the floor and whatever. And if you look at the carved imagery at places like Quebec Tepe, that's exactly what you see. I mean, you're not just seeing just one snake. You're seeing whole mats of, of snakes crawling up the side of stones. And it's such a prevalent symbol that it must have had an incredibly important meaning to them. But did it just represent the idea that they were entering into visionary states? I don't think so. I think that it had... DNA, do you a, see? A, a, Well, yeah, I mean, it could have represented DNA simply because we know that DNA looks very snake-like today. But in theory, they wouldn't have known that. I think what it represents is deep knowledge, deep cosmic knowledge or knowledge that's coming to them from, you know, somewhere else. You know, and that very clearly that knowledge is coming to them whilst they're in these altered states of consciousness they made that connection, snake, altered states of consciousness, new knowledge. Uh, and I think that this is something which is very prominent at Gobekli Tepe, but clearly was not new at that time. You know, the, the cave artists of Europe and elsewhere in the world would almost certainly have been doing very similar shamanic um, you know, journeys, going back, well, beyond our own time here, uh, back to the the Neanderthals, the the the, you know, the Denisovans, and you know other early types of 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 archaic human. I mean, they would have discovered this and passed on this knowledge to us.
2: Yeah, I love that. And something else that fascinates me. I mean, you talk about. I've heard you talk about in relation to Göbekli Tepe is the sound acoustics. Could you go into that? Because I think that's a really interesting piece to the puzzle as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is something which um, yeah needs more wider exposure. Uh, I mean, certain work has been done at Gobekli Tape looking at the layout and deciding whether sound acoustics uh, may have played a role yeah. in the layout of them. Uh, however, what myself and the engineer Rodney Hale have done is taken it one step further by actually showing that the, that the design of various of the earliest uh, enclosures at Gobekli Tepe are very specific in shape. Uh, they have a 4-3 ratio in a style which, even down to the modern day, is recommended in the design and construction of theatres uh, so that the, the human voice can be projected. Uh, and in fact, one particular um, account that I found which is, uh, you know, on, on a book on design of theatres, could almost be given for the, you know, the, the creation of Gobekli Tepe wow. itself. It fits so perfectly. Um, and and I have no doubt that sound acoustics played an incredibly important role at Gobekli Tepe, which is another example of how sophisticated mm. the earliest of the structures were. There, yeah. which by the way were all uh, elliptical in shape. Um, the later ones were all uh, rectangular, uh, rectilinear in appearance, and as I said earlier, much smaller. Of intelligence, isn't it? It's
2: incredible. Do you know how, something else I want to touch on as well? Is I know when you book, The Cygnus Key, you touch on you're starting to talk about the D- Denisovans, as yeah. that's how you pronounce them in the name, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, how does, did they come in, Could you like sort of explain the picture of how they come into Gobekli Tepe?
0: Yeah, um, I mean, obviously, you could say that Gobekli Tepe was the product of a lost civilization, but then you have to ask yourself, well, what is a lost civilization? What does that mean? Well, amongst, let's say, the ancient mysteries community, there have been two prevailing ideas about where a lost civilization could have come from. One is that it was created by the survivors of Atlantis, um, who obviously came from this landmass that existed, most obviously, in, in the Atlantic Ocean, and that it sank in a cataclysm, and that survivors reached the shores both of the, you know, the 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 American continent and the Eurasian continent, and went on to found the early civilization there. This is a tradition and an idea. Another, of course, is that there may have been some kind of alien involvement. Uh, that you know, ancient aliens came down, you know, taught us a, a thing or two that allowed us. To kickstart civilization. But today we have a third alternative, a third possibility, and that is that the rudiments were gifted of civilization were gifted to us by one of these archaic human populations. And were they called the hooded
2: ones as well? Is that what everyone refers to as the hooded ones? Um, the...
0: Not at that point. Oh, no, right, right. sorry, I'll let no. you finish. No, I it. mean, <laughs> so. Who are these archaic humans? Well, we know that in Western Eurasia, the most dominant population was that of the Neanderthals. We know that the Neanderthals were incredibly advanced. I mean, you know, their tools they had fire, they had glue. Um, they they knew about herbs. Uh, they wore cloaks of feathers. Um, they wore jewellery um, and many other things which, which marked them out as a lot more intelligent than we've ever really given them credit and i think that most archaeologists anthropologists are coming to accept that but you still wouldn't say that they were the givers of civilization they may well have uh, offered us some some new ideas when we came along probably about 40 to 50,000 years ago but you know that that was that was probably it however only in the past decade we have found absolute evidence for the existence of another archaic human population that existed mostly from Central Asia, eastwards into Eastern Asia, Southeast Asia, um, uh, Southern Asia, or certainly that's where their descendants um, ended up. Uh, And this comes from evidence of human remains found in a... Place called the Denisova Cave in the Altai Mountains of southern Siberia. Uh, And this is a fascinating place because not only are you finding these remains, which have been DNA tested and their genome revealed to show that they are unlike modern humans and unlike Neanderthals, although closer to Neanderthals than they are us, but in the same layer. As these remains are being found, you have advanced technology coming out. Then this includes what's known as the Denisova, sorry, the Denisovan bracelet. Yeah, now you yeah. know any viewer that's looking at this, just type this straight into really, really to awesome. Google and see what we're talking about. And this is what we might call a bangle uh, made of a, a very beautiful green stone. Uh, it's it's in two fragments today. Uh, The actual stone type is uh, chloriterite, which is a form of chlorite, uh, which which is what gives it this green colouring. It's a type of stone that has two different hues to it, one in natural, one in in artificial light. And not only does it show evidence of sawing, polishing, but there is a, a hole pierced through it which was obviously to hang something from it maybe a a ring or something on a cord and the the examination of this hole shows that it was cut with a drill with such a fast speed rate that it's comparable to that of a modern day drill now Let's go back one here. This doesn't necessarily mean that they had electric drills back then. And by the way, the age of this Denisovan bracelet is sixty to seventy thousand years ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, and, and and what's more important is that nothing similar—I mean, other than what was coming out from this cave and a few other similar locations—was repeated until around ten thousand years ago. Oh. By the Gobekli Tepe civilization. Wow. Okay. What it does mean is that these people were incredibly innovative and were able to create drills using stone tools that had a very sparse, fast speed rate. Well, uh, you know, you think, well, how could they have done that? Well, I put this to um, a, a colleague of mine uh, who's a um, you know university. Uh, and um, he he came up with an answer within seconds, and, and he said, "Look, you could use water, you know, in the same way that a mill would would power, you know, a, a millstone. Yeah, a water wheel would power a mill. Mm-hmm. You could do it on a, on a, a smaller scale, and you could have an axle with a stone on it, and it would it would get an incredible rate of yeah. speed, and that would cut through a, a softer stone very quickly." Yeah. So you know, it doesn't, as I said, it doesn't necessarily mean that you know that they had alien technology or anything like that. But it means that they're incredibly innovative. But on top of the Denisova bracelet, Denisovan bracelet, you have also incredibly advanced stone tool technologies of a type which comes in at this very point in the same areas of Denisova Cave and even in the same layer as the Denisovans, that ends up becoming the mainstay of the toolkit throughout the rest of the Paleolithic era and through into the time of Gobekli Tepe. Uh, And you can trace, it's almost like a paper trail, of where this stone tool technology came from. And it ends up in Southwest Asia and in Europe, but you can take it all the way back through the Ural Mountains that border between Europe and Asia into the very area of Gobekli Tepe, in the Altai Mountains, Mongolia. So that's where it all started, about 50,000 years ago.
2: Well, I want to jump back to the Denisovans, definitely. Yeah. I just wanted to... Cause I Actually, had something in my head that I wanted to jump back on, but with the example of the hooded ones, because mm. I, I think it's just good to sort of dive into that a little bit before I go too yep. deep into yeah. the Denisovans. Sorry,
0: yeah. I mean, it, the, the term hooded ones is, is something that I've used in, in my books, you know, in other words, though, those that wore hoods. Yeah. Well, um, this seems to be a reference to. People that were obviously covering their head now clearly they they could have been doing as well.
2: Many books that I've read also mention this as well, so it's very
0: interesting. Yeah, I mean clearly climate comes into this. I mean, if you're coming from the north down, let's say into the Near East, you know Anatolia in the Near East, you would have um, you know very warm clothes, which perhaps the people in the areas that you were going, which are slightly warmer climate, would not have had or not seen before. That's obvious, but I think it's more than that because it could well be that these incoming elite groups look slightly different to the the other people and they wanted to keep their appearance um, hidden, so they would use hoods to do that. So the question then comes through, what do they look like then? Mm. Well, firstly... I think that the evidence from myth and legend uh, and also from anatomical evidence seems to suggest that they were slightly taller than everybody else. Not by much, probably only by six inches you know, a foot at the most, but that they were taller and that this becomes exaggerated across time to the point that they've become giants. But more than this is that the descriptions, for instance, let's say of the Watchers of the Book of Enoch... Uh, which records this the you know this elite that existed, uh, you know it refers to them as a form of angels that that you know had their own almost kibbutz like um, communities on the top of mountains and things like that uh, in the Near East. Uh, you know they call it Eden, they call it heaven, they call it paradise. Yeah. You know, and it would seem as if the original terms for these locations were simply places away from the mortal populations of the region you know in other words they kept themselves to themselves and it's you know their faces were different it was said that they they, they were very long like vipers um, it said that their skin was was very ruddy um, it said that their hair was 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 you know occasionally um, almost like albino like in appearance long and albino like uh, this doesn't necessarily mean that they were all albinos or whatever but um, it does mean that some of them Amongst their community, may have looked different to those that they were coming into contact with. Um, And it may well be that as time went on, uh, they would have had to have covered themselves up more and more because elites always get turned upon eventually, you know, whether it be royal dynasties, you know, priesthoods, whatever. Mm. Uh, When something goes wrong, and maybe you know another cataclysm let's say does occur the people that are supposed to be looking after you and taking care of you are the ones that you blame and this is our royal dynasty's end and things like this and it may well be that at a certain point these people had to cover up or they'd be killed uh, and i do genuinely believe that, that that is is likely but why did they look so different well i think that the simple answer is that they were hybrids. Uh, they were hybrids, either of the Denisovans, and the meagre evidence that we have so far of their appearance would suggest that they were incredibly big in size and in stature, um, and that their hybrid descendants would have retained at least some of their genes, uh, including height and in and various other you know things like. Um, being able to exist in extremely cold conditions, which is one of the genes that would seem to have been passed on by the Denisovans uh, to our earliest ancestors, yeah. um, and is still amongst the Sherpas and Tibetan peoples today of the Himalayas and Tibetan Plateau. Uh, but also, uh, I think that you know they would have passed on certain physiology, you know, which would have have, have continued on for tens of thousands of years i was just thinking that i was wondering how long um uh,
1: someone with um, a larger stat- status such as uh, um, a group of people could actually sustain themselves for a long period of time uh, because they wouldn't have had um it's, like as access to we have food now but they would have had to have, like had a lot more nourishment than someone say of a smaller stature so would that have like been in their decline Would naturally just evolution would take place and get
0: them out the we way, so to say? Uh, well, at the moment, we haven't got any real evidence of, of their diet, I'm afraid. So, uh, you know, we'll leave that one to speculation. Um, however, what we do know is that the environment would have been a lot harsher. I mean, this was the, the Ice Age. You know, there would have been a lot of very dangerous animals around. Um, there probably would have been cataclysms on a much more... Uh, frequent basis and I mean in my mind I'm, I'm thinking now you know, 40 to 70,000 years ago um, and also there's an element here which we've not come on to yet and I think it's really important to mention and that is that the Denisovans have been found to have two genes yeah, which it, yeah. are associated in modern human populations with autism uh, now, this doesn't necessarily mean that all Denisovans were autistic, um, but it does open up the possibility that they had a slightly shifted mindset to that of our own. And this could explain why they advanced much quicker than our own ancestors and had a um, not only an ability to create beautiful jewellery and beautiful stone tools which were unlike anything that had been produced before and why we might have adopted these ideas but also why they may have lived in remote regions like the Dennis of a Cave uh, you know in the Alte Mountains away from everywhere else because we know that one of the things that autism does in modern um, you know communities is that autistic people Generally become very isolated, and that 's most often by choice, because they can't relate to the real world or certainly the, the you know the the world of, of other people uh, and vice versa we, we've up until certainly in the past few decades found it very difficult to understand autistic people, people who would have incredible savant qualities. You know things like um, calendar counting. You know being able to project, predict what day of the week you know mm-hmm. a, a day would that. be. You know a map reading or remembering things or being able to paint in, in incredible ways just without any kind of, uh, of of formal education or being able to just hear a piece of music and then replicating it. Yeah, you know, all these savant-like qualities are integrally related to the autistic mindset. Um, and if we can connect at least some of these with the idea that the Denisovans may themselves have had a shifted, different mindset, it might begin to give us some answers as to why they pulled forward much faster than their own ancestors. Now, the sceptic might say, well, hold on, hold on, right, on, right, on. Right. wait a minute, wait right a well, well, obviously, we've obviously got these these autistic genes as well. So why didn't we... Advance in the same way, well, the fact is that we didn't we 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 were we were very efficient we were very efficient hunters from a very early point, but I think that our mindsets were a lot more rationalistic. you know we would create you know efficient killing um you know weapons, and we would go from territory to territory, exhausting um whatever was there and then moving on that's that's what happened after you know we essentially left. Um, Africa, you know, we weren't con- we are concerned with absolute beauty, in the same way that the Denis- Denisovans or, to a degree, the the Neanderthals were. Although they haven't been found to have the same autistic genes, as far as I'm aware, yet. Mm-hmm. But it would seem that Denisovans they were able to develop this different state of mind, a different physiology. To the the uh, and quite clearly, technologies which were unique to them, like the creation of the of a bracelet. Uh, and by the way, on, on top of that, there's some evidence that they may have even rode horses. Yeah, domesticated horse. Uh, and also, they they produced the earliest needles, bone needles, anywhere in the world, 40 oh. to 50,000 years ago, I believe, and earlier than that, which means that they had tailored clothing. Now. You know, so we could be looking at people here that had tailored clothing, beautiful jewellery, riding around on horses with really sophisticated stone tools. Totally. That's what the Denisovans were. So, as I said, the idea that civilization could have been gifted to modern humans by the Denisovans becomes a really real possibility.
2: Well, is there any other... Um... In the place in Russia, is there any other sort of archaeological data being discovered there? Because I know that's like I said, it's only hasn't been that long discovered. Is there any? I yeah. mean, that's probably an interesting place for you to go next, yeah.
0: Maybe? I mean, As well. I mean, the Denisovans die out around 40,000 years ago, uh, which coincidentally is when we turn up in the same yeah. area. Yeah. So, what exactly happened, I don't know, but it probably didn't go well. Um, but the one thing that we do know from dozens of modern human populations is that we now carry Denisovan DNA. Um, now, whether this wow, be really? in India, whether this be in Australia, amongst the, 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 the original peoples there, within uh, the, the Papua New Guineans, um, within the peoples of the Han people of China, Japanese, Korea, you know, many, many other places now carry Denisovan DNA up to around 5 to 6%. So there was a lot lot of interbreeding and admixture uh, existing at this time. So the legacy of the Denisovans lives on in us. And the earliest period after the departure of the Denisovans meant that they would have had what we call the Denisovan hybrids that would have been part human, part Denisovan. And it would seem as if they went you know throughout Eurasia certainly to the east and I suspect also to the to the west as well Um, and also cross the Pacific cross the land bridge between Alaska and Siberia and enter into the Americas Uh, and I've just had a uh, an article published all about the impact of these Denisovan hybrids in in north america uh, because there are stories amongst the very earliest of the human populations you know the first peoples of america that talk about the fact that when they arrived there there were already a population present they go under various names like the thunder people that uh, the, the, the Amamiki. Uh, was the, the term thunder people or thunderbirds—these giant birds that could shapeshift and remove their feather coats to take on human form—the um, stone giants was another term that was used for for these these early populations. They also were connected with thunder and lightning and had these strange supernatural abilities, according to these later peoples. Um, and So, you know, there's a strong possibility that the Denisovan hybrids had a massive impact in the Americas, uh, as they would have done in many other parts of the world. And I think that we have to start looking at the myths and legends of giants in various parts of the world and say to ourselves, you know, is it possible that these are the memory of Denisovan hybrids? and you know, to start trying to understand the information contained in these myths and legends. I mean, for instance, in the very area of the Denisova Cave in the Altai, the Altai region, there are accounts of giants there that were said to be the the um, the founders of human dynasties. They were said to have given us, you know, the first irrigation, to have created the first stone monuments, and various other things. So, really, if you're looking for the cradle of civilization, it's not the Near East, around Gobekli Tepe, but much, much earlier in the area of Siberia in the Altai Mountains. And wow. various people have sussed this in the past, but now the evidence is
2: there. Well, here's a question as well. What what comes before for the Denisovans? <laughs> That's the thing I'm thinking well, about. Well, wow. yeah,
0: I mean, we've looked into this as well, because who were the Denisovans? Well... The Denisovans split off from the Neanderthals uh, quite early on, uh, dates vary, but it, it could have been as early as, as five hundred and fifty to 750,000 years ago. Uh, and it, it would seem as if there's a relationship between the Denisovans and an early human population, archaic human population, called Homo heidelbergensis. Now they were certainly in Europe um and the first ever skull of this particular archaic human was found just outside of Heidelberg in Germany in 1907 called the the Mauer skull and it was massive I mean it's absolutely huge um and the the teeth in the Mauer skull are very similar to those of Denisovans and Also, the DNA of Homo heidelbergensis was found um, within um, human remains that were retrieved from a cave site in Spain, Um, and these remains date to about 430,000 years ago. And the DNA is similar, more similar to Denisovans than it is to the local Neanderthal. Wow. communities that, that would follow that which is what the anthropologists you know thought they would find but they didn't know the so called mitochondrial dna which is the the bit the, the dna of our bacteria in our bodies was much close to that of denisovans so this suggests strongly that denisovans are the descendants the direct descendants of homo heidelbergensis but the, the importance with this is that when the remains of Homo are found in southern uh, um, Africa, South Africa. They're regularly seven to seven and a half feet tall. Wow. So, this could That's be huge. the evidence we need to show us that the Denisovans were, were extremely large. And if you want a, an idea of what the Denisovans might have looked like, yeah. just look up the great Kali.
1: Oh, the wrestler? Yeah, the yeah, wrestler. Yeah
0: the WWE wrestler, he was born in, in in India. Just look at him. That's what a Denisovan hybrid would look like. Yeah, cool. I mean, he's wow. seven feet tall in height, built like a brick, you know. Yeah, shit, shit else, Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um, uh, just look at him. And I would say he's as close as you're going to get. Not so much to a Denisovan, because... Um, you know we don't really know exactly what they would like yeah. but the denisovan hybrids i'd say he's very close to it yeah really interesting i keep asking myself like how
2: far is this going to go back because there's just more and more evidence all the time just like stuff just keeps getting older and older all the time it's like how far is like an intelligent human race actually go back do you keep asking yourself that well
0: That's i do right? yeah but um i mean you know it's a difficult one because in hindu tradition humanity comes in in waves and cycles and and even plato talked about this um in his account of atlantis in the timaeus but you know we also have to think about evolution as well and we can only take it back so far and say well clearly you know the further we we go that the more primitive we must have been i mean that's common sense at this time unless we find absolute evidence of really advanced communities existing in the past. And the way I like to look at it is I think that we are like branches of a tree and that some of those branches may well have developed high culture or what we call advanced human behaviour at certain points, perhaps much earlier than the Denisovans. And they're like flowers that open eventually um but then something happens and those flowers close and then another flower opens somewhere else in the world and then that closes and then another one opens mm. and i think this is what we see but the general timeline here is the denisovans in southern siberia which i think is the cradle of civilization then the movement the migrations westwards and south until we reached places like Quebec Tepe, 9,500 BC, and then the movement from there through the Levant into North Africa onto the into the Nile Valley Perfect. and the beginning of the ancient Egyptian civilization. And in my opinion, and this is what I write in the Cygnus Key, the greatest evidence of... The legacy of the Denisovans is the Great Pyramid, in my opinion. It contains the geometry, the mathematics, the knowledge, which I've been able to trace piece by piece through places like Gebekli Tepe, through to the area of Siberia, where you have evidence of very similar geometry, mathematics, and, uh, and a knowledge of the cyclic motion of the celestial bodies, the sun, the moon, and also eclipse cycles that exist in that same area as the Denisovans at least 24,000 years ago. And I'm certain this itself is a legacy of the Denisovans and their autistic mindset, which I think was able to look at the stars, look at the celestial bodies and recall down, almost like calendar counting, this cyclic time, and passing it on to their the earliest hybrids and saying, remember these numbers, remember these shapes, you know, remember this geometry, remember all of this knowledge, and just pass it down. And I think that's what happened. And I think that a lot of our ancestors forgot where it came from or even its importance, but they just knew they had to preserve it. They knew they had to build it into architecture, not just the Great Pyramid, Hindu and Buddhist temples in places like Cambodia, Angkor Wat, Java, Bora Buddha, um, other places in, in India, and to preserve it within mythology, within the idea of cyclic time, which we find even within Northern Europe, in North mythology. Yeah. And I think that this is something that is this legacy, and we will find eventually that it does go back to the Denisovans
2: wow great place to end on i think fantastic Uh, wow well really well explained by the way so thank you so much my pleasure wow podcast wow (laughs) holy moly what a podcast conversation that was i really hope you enjoyed that and if that podcast did not send tingles all the way down your spine i don't know what will really interesting stuff and currently, as well, Andrew is actually leading a team of researchers in Siberia at the moment in Russia. So I'm really looking forward to see what the what more stuff they discover, and hopefully in the future we can get Andrew back on the podcast again. And please check out all his books. And my favorite is the Cygnus Key, which covers a lot of what we talked about on this podcast, but obviously goes a lot more in intricate, intricate. I can't say the word intricate detail. And we really do have some great podcasts coming up. We've been traveling all over the place to bring you the best content we can. And please, if you can, spread the word of this podcast to all your friends. And let's see if we can spread some more real information around the whole of the planet. And please consider helping us grow by also by supporting us via our Patreon page or our one-off donation option. And even just $2 a month will be a huge help. Anywhere, wherever you are in the world, please just do something positive today or towards someone else. Even just say hello to someone can change someone's life. So anyway, we love you all. Peace and love.